Ezekiel chapter 24, as we're chugging away through the book. Three longtime friends were on a fishing boat, but the fish just weren't really biting, so they were kind of getting bored, these fishermen. But one of the three friends said, I got an idea. He said, let's be totally honest with each other and confess our worst sins. I'll go first. He said, I have a big problem with the sin of lust. I've been cheating on my wife for over a year and I just can't seem to control myself. The second guy said, well, as long as we're being honest with each other, I'll tell you what my problem is, the sin of greed. I just can't get enough money. I've been embezzling funds from my company for years. I just can't seem to be in control of myself. The third guy said, well, my problem is the sin of gossip. Not only can I not control myself, I can't wait to get home. <laughs> oh boy. Be sure of this, the Bible says, your sin will find you out. It's true, Numbers 32, 23. It's true that it's not God will find you out. He saw it all along. It's your sin itself will catch up with you. And that's what we have to be aware of. And, and that's part of what the book of Ezekiel is about. You know, some people say, well, who cares about Jerusalem thousands of years ago and their sins and their folly and their destruction. But this is all a reminder for you and for me that the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. And if we don't think that Ezekiel and this book applies to us, we haven't read the whole Bible. For the same judgment that we see come upon Jerusalem will ultimately come upon this whole world. The wrath of God poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world as defined in the book of Revelation as the, the tribulation. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 24. You know, I, I, I marvel when I see people say, well, if God cares about us and his love, then why doesn't he intervene in the world? And the answer is simply he will. Bible says he will, and, and that's gonna be a crazily brutal day. And the story of, you know, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, um, you know, these prophets that were trying to warn the people, it's really similar today in that we are living in similar times, only not just a city, not just Judea, but we're watching globally the worldview of the people of today. And there's coming a time where the Lord says, that's it, it's over. And don't mistake, it's, it's not a smart mistake to say, well, uh, God hasn't judged us yet, so we must be pulling it off. We must be getting away with it. Uh, that's not the case. Um, and we should learn the lesson from the men of Jerusalem. And that's really where we're at. We're seeing not only Jerusalem judged and Judea, but now tonight we're actually gonna start seeing even some of the other nations surrounding uh, getting some of the, the judgment and collateral damage um, and we're gonna actually see why, why some of these other nations uh, are gonna be judged. But um, if we would, we've got chapter tw <clears throat> 24, um, where it's basically the, the sins uh, that the people have committed and more of an um, explanation and even a little parable uh, that, that Ezekiel's gonna employ. Once again, if you've ever, if been with us in our study, Ezekiel's used all kinds of methods and messages pantomimes or, uh, you know, uh, theatrical uh, little dramas that he's done because people wouldn't listen to his words. So he was, people would say, oh, what's Ezekiel up to again now? He's acting out in the city square. What's he doing? Well, he's lying on his side for all these days, you know. Well, that's how many days you're gonna be judged. Like all these uh, object lessons, taking his hair and cutting it up with a sword and throwing it in the wind, crazy stuff. 
but the people wouldn't hear his message, so they had to see it. We're gonna see another one of those little parables right here. And this is what we're gonna call the parable of the pot. Now, for those of you that are Portlandians, uh, we're not talking about your weed. Uh, we're talking about a pot for cooking. Uh, and, uh, and we're gonna see what Ezekiel's gonna use this pot to demonstrate. Let's take a look, verse one, chapter 24. Again, in the ninth year, in the 10th month, in the 10th day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, write thee in the name of the day, even of this same day, the king of Babylon set himself against Jerusalem this same day and utter a parable unto the rebellious house and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, set on a pot, set it on and also pour water into it. Now pause before we get into the parable of the pot. This date is important because it gives us the exact day when Nebi, uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, starts to take Jerusalem in the final wave in 586 BC. So what's amazing about this is this is Ezekiel marking the calendar. He's even told here, mark the calendar, write it down. So that when it happened, the people would know Ezekiel knew exactly what he was talking about because this would be the very day when Nebuchadnezzar would uh, start to take Jerusalem. Um, by the way, there's extra biblical accounts you can look up if you're you know, looking in the right places that describe the Babylonian taking of Jerusalem and how they broke through a wall and made a breach in the wall. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, for those of you who know the story of Ezekiel, it's interesting, they made a big hole in the wall and the Babylonians just flooded through and uh, took the city quite handily and quite easily. But that happened right on this very day, the very first verse, the ninth year in the 10th month, in the 10th day of the month, the word of the Lord came and, and then the Lord said, mark this day, mark it on the calendar. And he did, and it proved to be accurate, just always as the Lord is. Um, so utter this parable, set a pot on you know, the, the, um, the fire and you're gonna do some cooking. <laughs> well, verse four, he says, get, you know, get water, pour, pour, put water into it. Verse four, gather the pieces thereof into it, that is of meat. And it says, even of every good piece, the thigh, the shoulder, filled with choice bones and take the choice of the flock and burn also the bones under it and make it boil well and let them seethe in the bones of it therein. Now, this is language you and I are kind of like, yeah, I don't know about all this bones uh, and seething and meat soaking and all that stuff. I, I prefer it off of a grill myself. But what you have to do is see, this is the best cuts of meat. Like everything's poised for a great meal, you know, with a healthy broth and a, and a good meal for food. Everything's postured for that because it's the choicest of meats and the best bones and what have you that they're making this out of. But the problem is what's about to happen. Have you ever ruined a steak? Um, a couple summers ago, I had a, a couple really nice top sirloins. And uh, you know, I, I cook things on Traegers and grills and different things, but this particular day I was choosing briquettes with uh, my Weber, my old fashioned Weber. And uh, it was one of those things where I put the steaks on, it was just, they were sizzling nicely. I walked into the house for like two minutes which you never do, uh, something like that. But I did, and I came back, and they were like, they turned into char charcoal briquettes, man. Just, the thing just went up like an inferno. Uh, my steaks were ruined, and we had to go to McDonald's for dinner that night. 
um, <laughs> I haven't done that since. Uh, it's, there's nothing worse than ruining the, the choice cut or meat. Uh, actually, ribeye is my favorite. Um, but that, that, all that to say, man, is anybody hungry all of a sudden? It's like, man, let's, we gotta get some deed after this. Um, <laughs> so this, this, you know, this is like, that's what these people would say, mmm, yum. You know, Ezekiel's cooking up the choice meat and, and cooking it the way they would in those days. But then what happens, it says, verse six, um, you know, or pardon me, verse five, it says, uh, take the choice of the flock, burn also the bones under it and make it boil well and let them see the bones of it there. And now we miss a little bit of the language in the English translation because in the Hebrew, there's more of an implication of not just well done, it's like overcooked. That's the idea. And he's gonna overcook the daylights out of this. That's what you have to picture. Have you ever boiled something? Um, talk, I, I gave my sins of my tur- sirloin steaks that I fried on my, you know. But have you ever been boiling something on the stove and, and it, you forgot that it was on and it just boiled, dehydrated, and pretty soon you just have scum and yuck glued to the bottom of your pan and there's no moisture left? That's what he's gonna do. I'm not kidding, that's what he does. He's gonna cook the daylights out of this to where there's no more moisture and it's just scum. Check it out. Um, so in verses one through five, by the way, we have the, the parable of the pot, but in ver- uh, verses six uh, and onward uh, to verse, uh, really, verse 14, we're gonna see the, the uh, uh, explanation of the parable of the pot and what it all means. So here we go. Verse six, wherefore, thus saith the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. Now this, this by the way, this phrase bloody city, do you guys remember why Ezekiel called it a bloody city? If you recall, it was called that earlier in chapter 22, verse two, and we've seen this before, but it's bloody because, well, it's like Chicago. Did you know there's been like 200 more murders in Chicago this year than last year? Um, Portland uh, homicides are up 700% this year. How's that defunding the police working in a lot of these cities and stuff? Um, You know, like we're becoming a bloody country. The the Europeans are saying, man, don't go to America. It's like World War III over there. You know, you might get shot. Um, There's horrible stories of people just watering their lawn and getting shot in America today. And, um, and you know, it's, it's certain cities particularly, but Portland's one of the worst as far as the homicide rate going up. Um, but that's the problem. It was that, there was people just being killed in the streets of Jerusalem, but there was also the bloody city delineation because of the sacrificial uh, Moloch and Chemosh system that the Jews were starting to employ during this time, sacrificing their children on altars. And it was a bloody city in God's eyes. And that's why he calls it that. So he says, woe unto the bloody city, that's Jerusalem, to the pot whose scum is therein and whose scum is not gone out of it. Bring it out piece by piece. Let no uh, no lot fall upon it. Now this is an interesting phrase, let no lot fall upon it. Um, Now just for a quick interpretation here so we can read this with somewhat understanding. um, this, This little parable, the symbology, well the pot itself is Jerusalem. Um, the, the, the contents, I should say, of the pot, the meat, the bones, and the, you know, the good stuff, the, the choice food, that was the Jews. They had it all going for them. They were God's chosen people. They were in a land flowing with milk and honey, and they could have been blessed out of their socks. But instead, the choice meat and the perfect pot, it just got overcooked with sin. And if you would, the scum is the sin of the Jews. That's, that's kind of the, the language here that we're using. 
and the burning up is, is kind of what God was gonna do to the Jews for their rebellion against him. So that, that's the picture here. But this, this idea of um, let no lot fall upon it, um, kind of an interesting phrase. In Bible times, they would draw lots, kind of like drawing straws. Uh, but casting lots would be to win something or to be the first one. Um, interesting, some scholars believe this is a reference to how the Babylonians would pick their prey. Um, the first wave, if you recall, in our um, study of Nebuchadnezzar, they drew lots. The, the Babylonians cast lots and said, which people are gonna you know, go with us into captivity? like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some say that the Babylonians cast lots for them. In the second wave as well, casting lots for those who would go. But interestingly, in the last phase of Babylon in 586 BC, there was no casting of lots. They either killed you or they took you into captivity. That was really largely what they did. And, and so some argue that this, this description of this pot where there'd be no casting of lots means that it's, it's gonna be completely uh, death or captivity for the people. Um, that's kind of the idea there. So he's already st- talking about the, uh, the scum of the, of the pot. Verse seven, for her blood is in the midst of her. She set it upon the top of a rock. She poured it not upon the ground to cover it with dust. Now, again, this, this pouring blood on the ground and not covering it with dust, this is something that you and I kind of go, what, huh? What does this have to do with anything? In the book of Leviticus, if you recall in Leviticus chapter 17, the, the Jews had very important um, you know, sanitary laws that they had to keep. And if there was shedding blood, it had to be buried. A dead you know, body or a dead animal, uh, the blood of the animal or the, whatever, they had to cover it and bury it with dirt. That was the law. Um, and um, by the way, that was one of the things before science showed us, you know, how um, medically it's nice to be clean and not have, you know, germs all over you and stuff. Did anybody see, sideline, tangent, me, normal. Um, have you, did you guys see the study that came out of, of the masks for, that children have been wearing lately? Did you see that? It came out just like yesterday. Um, they took um, masks from children and they wore the, the masks only for one day at school and they took those masks and studied them. It was horrifying the grossness of what they found on these masks. I won't even mention all the the materials that they found on these masks. But um, that's one of the arguments is that masks are very unsanitary things. Um, I saw a guy at Home Depot the other day uh, in the men's restroom and he he took his mask off and kind of threw it on the countertop and washed his hands and kind of wiped up and then kind of put his mask back on. I was like, ah, like I'm a little bit of a germ phobe. That that made me uh, kind of grossed out. Just the mass thing is gross, but, um, but all that to say, uh, you know, the Jews practiced cleanliness long before we even, you know, it, it wasn't even really to like world, or pardon me, the civil war, that surgeons even knew that you're supposed to kind of wash up before you do surgery on somebody. Like that's fairly modern science, the, the idea of scrubbing and cleanliness and all that. Like it wasn't that long ago really that uh, there was none of that. But the Jews, by the Levitical law, they were practicing clean things long before science caught up to that. And that's why, if you study your history, many of the Jews were blamed for like the Black Plague. The Jews were one of the people that were less affected in Europe by the Black Plague because of their cleanliness and their religious uh, washings and what have you. And uh, and it kept them sort of free from a lot of those plagues. And so that's why they said it's the Jews' fault. 
But um, be that as it may, this idea of burying the blood was a Levitical law. And um, the idea here is Jerusalem has become such a bloody city, it'll be bloody and they won't even be able to bury their dead. The carcasses would lay on the mountains of Israel unburied, which would be a horrifying image um, for the Jews. Uh, Very important to know that. Well, um, that's what's being said there in verse uh, seven there. And you might see a reference in your Bible there to Leviticus 17. Um, Verse eight, um, they'll pour the blood on the ground to, um, to cover with dust that it might cause fury to come up to take vengeance. I have set her blood upon the top of a rock that it should not be covered. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. I will even make a, the pile for fire great. Heap on wood, kindle the fire, consume the flesh and spice it well and let the bones be burned. Then set it empty upon the coals thereof that the brass of it may be hot and may burn and that the filthiness of it may be molten in it that the scum of it may be consumed. She hath wearied herself with lies and her great scum went not forth out of her. Her scum shall be in the fire. In thy filthiness is lewdness because I have purged thee and thou wast not purged. Thou shalt not be purged from thy filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon thee. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass and I will do it. I will not go back, neither will I spare, neither will I repent. According to thy ways and according to thy doings shalt they judge thee, saith the Lord God. You know, could you imagine, you know, hearing this uh, and watching Ezekiel burn the daylights out of this pot and then say, this is all you. And you guys, by the way, what you've done is the scum here that's left over and the, you know, the burned debris. The problem is the people didn't listen to Ezekiel. They're like, yeah, whatever, you're wacko. We don't like you, we don't like Jeremiah, and we're gonna keep doing what we're doing. That, that's really the way people received these words. Um, and sadly, that's the way some people receive it today. Some people say, oh, you know, God, you know, if he even exists, you know, he's, he's just indifferent or passive, doesn't care about what's going on in the world, and so, the world that just keeps, you know, sinning against the word, against the Lord, uh, they think they're gonna pull it off somehow, but there's a day coming um, that the sins will be found out and the judgment will come according to the Bible. Right, you sound like one of those preachers with a sandwich board, the end is near and judgment is coming. And exactly, that's me, you're right. But it's what the Bible says too. And people need to understand, well, Brad, my grandma used to tell me this stuff was gonna happen. And uh, she's in heaven now. And, and so what am I supposed to do with that? Well, we don't know when the Lord's gonna say time's up. But it does say you'll know the times and the seasons of when, when it'll come. First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, we talked about that in our last prophecy update on the first Friday of June. If you haven't checked that out, you might wanna check that out because we talked about the signs of the wrath of God coming. And it uh, sure seems to me like, you know, point for point, the Bible is, hitting you know, perfectly on the days that we're living as being the last days. I believe we are living the last days, but we'll see, we'll see. Nobody knows the day or the hour like they did in Ezekiel's time. Ezekiel gave them the day and the hour, if you would, but we don't have that for the second coming of Christ and the tribulation period, the rapture of the church, none of that. We don't know when that's gonna be. We just know the season and the times. Well, he goes on in verse 15. 
Also the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, behold, I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Yet neither shalt thou mourn nor weep, neither shalt thy tears run down. What's this all about? Well, now we change gears into something that's kind of brutal. Ezekiel has been serving the Lord, prophesying all his days. And the Lord basically, this is nice King James way of saying, the one that you loved from your youth, your wife, she's gonna die. With just one stroke, she's gonna, now it's not that she had a stroke, but it's like the Lord is gonna take her. That's the idea. It's, it's kind of brutal language here. And she's gonna go to heaven. And, and then to make matters worse, here's Ezekiel serving the Lord and he's you know, lying on a side for you know, hundreds of days and chopping his hair off and doing all this stuff. And suddenly the Lord says, your, your wife's gonna die. And by the way, you can't mourn about it. Now, some people say, this isn't fair. Well, we'll talk about this here as we kind of look at the rest of this chapter because he goes on, verse 17. Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead. Bind the tire, or the, the turban is another way of saying that, uh, of thine head upon thee, but put thy shoes upon thy feet and cover not thy lips and eat not the bread of men. Now, this is a language that you and I don't recognize, but it's the language of mourning. When a Jewish person would die, they would wrap their heads with a turban and their, their lips so you couldn't see their face. So you couldn't see their wailing. They would sort of veil their face and they would cover their lips and their mouth and they wouldn't eat and they'd take off their shoes and walk around barefoot. But all of the typical mourning practices, Ezekiel was told, don't do it. Now, did you catch the Lord recognizing that there was something special between Mr. Ezekiel and Mrs. Ezekiel? Did you, did you sense that? It was quite a, a beautiful uh, phrase here. It says, I'm gonna take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Um, the desire of thine eyes. I, I just think that's kind of a sweet phrase that Ezekiel, when he looked at his wife, that was his desire. Um, I think that's sweet, but it makes it even more horrible that the Lord says, by the way, I'm gonna take her. She's gonna die. And this is a very sad thing, but the, then the Lord says, no mourning, you can't cry, and it's all part of a deal. Now, now um, he goes on, uh, verse 18. So Ezekiel, I spake unto the people in the morning and at the evening my wife died. And I did in the morning as I was commanded. Man, Ezekiel's a faithful servant. If there was ever a time a guy's like, you know what, Lord, I'm not doing that this time. I've, I've done enough. I've chopped my hair off. I've eaten food cooked with manure. I've done all kinds of horrible things. I cut a hole in my wall and hold my furniture out through that hole. Remember all the stories we've read about Ezekiel? He's done it all. This would be the one I'd be tempted to say, mm, no. Like I'm gonna be rebellious on this one because it's ridiculous. But Ezekiel, the faithful servant of God says, okay, and he did it. Um, just as he was commanded, verse 19. And the people said unto me, wilt thou not tell us what these things are to us that thou doest so? Then I answered them, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, speak unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the excellency of your strength, the desire of your eyes and that which your soul pitieth and your sons and your daughters whom you have left shall fall by the sword and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men and your tires or turbans shall be upon your heads and your shoes upon your feet. And you shall not mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away for your iniquities and mourn one toward another. 
Thus Ezekiel is unto you a sign. According to all that he hath done shall you do. And when this cometh, ye shall know that I am the Lord God. Also the Son of Man shall it not be in the day when I take from them their strength, the joy of their glory, the desire of their eyes, that whereupon they set their minds, their sons and their daughters, that he that escapeth in that day shall come unto thee to cause thee to hear it with thine ears. In that day shall thy mouth be opened unto him, which is escaped, and thou shalt speak and be no more dumb, and thou shalt be a sign unto them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, as we look at this sort of sad section where Ezekiel loses his wife and can't mourn for her, let me just ask you this question. Do you think Mrs. Ezekiel's up in heaven thinking, man, what a bummer. I really got a raw end of the deal. Or, or is she with Mr. Ezekiel in heaven and they're realizing that she was a major player in the world's history as a, as a sign? You know, like in the grand scheme of things, we have to understand even the things we don't agree with, the things we don't like, the Bible says we'll all say righteous and true are his judgments. Nobody in heaven will be going, hey, I got the raw end of the deal. That wasn't fair. Nobody's gonna say that. But every knee and, uh, will bow and tongue will confess. And I, I believe that, um, that uh, Miss Ezekiel, Mrs. Ezekiel goes down as a great uh, woman of the Bible uh, because as, you know, Ezekiel loved her. And as it says, she was the desire of his eyes, but the Lord uses her as an example to warn the people. And the idea here, if you didn't catch it, is basically they're gonna be so busy with horrible things, they're not gonna have time to mourn. They're gonna be still being judged for their own sins, even though their sons and their daughters and their own wives would be killed. The Lord says, you're, you're not even gonna have time to mourn and take off your shoes and all that stuff because of the evil that you've done. Um, and that's, that's kind of what the rest of this chapter is saying. You know, this is an example, <clears throat> what Ezekiel went through, that's what you're gonna feel. Poor Ezekiel, man, he, he had to um, bear the burden that these people were gonna have to bear in a, in a real tangible way. <clears throat> but I must say, um, sometimes ministry is like that. Can I just say that? When you're in ministry, any of you guys that are in ministry, if you've been in ministry for very long, you kind of know there's something about that that rings true. Over the years, you know, I've felt this where you, you kind of, you almost feel like you're part of the situation with some of the marriages that you counsel. Um, there's been definite situations where I've, I've felt, I've, I care more about this marriage than this couple cares about their own marriage. And, and you hurt, you just hurt for people. And it takes its toll. Do you remember when Jesus, uh, you know, the woman reached out and touched his garment, the woman had the issue of blood. And, it, you know, there's a huge crowd. People were pressing everywhere. And this woman just reaches into the crowd and touches Jesus' garment and suddenly she's healed. And then Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And the disciples were like, are you kidding? Uh, did you see there's a million people around here and they're pressing on every side? Who touched me? And, and, and then Jesus explained, well, there was something different. Virtue has gone from me. What happened there? Virtue had gone from Jesus when the woman touched and there was healing. And, and I think there's kind of an interesting thing there that, that, that when you're ministering to people and you're pouring your life into them and trying to help them, there's something that can be quite, um, you know, it's almost like this transfer of, of pain. You feel for people. Um, it takes its toll, I just gotta say that. Uh, over the years especially, I've had to just kind of acknowledge that. 
Um, but here, Ezekiel kind of gets a, that up close and personal with his wife being taken. And it, it's, it's sad for him. Um, but again, in the eternal picture, I'm sure they're not up there complaining, Lord, that wasn't a very nice thing to do. Not at all. But uh, righteous and true are his judgments. But don't be surprised when you're ministering and serving if you feel a little bit like Ezekiel sometimes. Come on, Lord, I'm serving you. I should feel great. That's not always the case. Sometimes you hurt in the midst of ministry. It kind of goes, uh, by the way, when I was a younger man, uh, I heard um, somebody say once that, you know, who was it? Uh, Chuck Swindoll said, if you're a pastor, um, you know, be ready to have your heart broken. And as a young man, I was like, what a wimp. <laughs> uh, now I kind of say the same thing. It's true. Uh, people are brutal. Uh, and sometimes it does, you do kind of have heartbreaking situations that you see over the years. And it, it, it is something. That's kind of what Ezekiel's going through here, um, you know, which is uh, something that, but, but you know, it's all about the bigger picture. I hope you understand that. The eternal picture. I hope we remember that. It's almost like as Christians, we should have a whole different economy of what's good and what's bad because we have to look at it in light of eternity. It reminds me of the story on a balmy October afternoon in 1982. Big stadium, big football game. The Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin was packed. Uh, more than 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin fans were watching their football, football team take on Michigan State. Big big game. But it soon became obvious that MSU had the better team. And what seemed odd was that the score became more lopsided. And the more lopsided it became, there were bursts of applause and shout from the Wisconsin fans. Uh, even though their team was being pummeled in the field by the opposing team, they were smiling and high-fiving each other as if they were winning rather than losing. How could this be? Well, as it turns out, that 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in game three of the 1982 World Series. And many of the fans were listening on their portable radios and responding to something other than what they were seeing on the field. And I believe this is how we as Christians might be. Uh, we're high-fiving each other uh, even when bad things are happening. And we smile even when horrible things are happening. Why? Because we have a different game. There's a, there's a different picture. And there's a big win somewhere else. And the big win is heaven and eternity with God. And so uh, if, you're, if you're not a Christian and you wonder why are those weirdo Christians always joyful uh, when things are bad? Uh, because it's not about this life. Set your affections on things above and not on things of this earth. That's what the apostle Paul warned us about. But that's what Mr. and Mrs. Ezekiel had to do. They had to think in the bigger picture here. And it was, it was quite a story. Now, in chapter 25, this is where we begin to see God passing out judgments to the various uh, neighboring nations of the Jews. And he's gonna begin with the Ammonites and then go to the Moabites. Does anybody remember? Who were the Ammonites and the Moabites descendants of? Anybody? Lot. Uh, quite a twisted story, if you recall. After Lot and his two daughters uh, were the survivors of Sodom and Gomorrah, they ended up in a cave up in the mountains near Zoar. And the daughters of Lot were pouting, saying, we're not gonna have any husbands and we're not gonna have any children because of this horrible situation. So they got their dad drunk, had sexual relationships with him incestuously and became pregnant. And one daughter gave birth, the younger gave birth to, the, uh, to a little boy named Ammon and the older daughter gave birth to a, a son named Moab. And Ammon and Moab became fathers of 
um, fairly nomadic bunch of people, but they pretty much settled on the east side of Israel, uh, on the east side of the Jordan River in what is today modern day Jordan. Um, Edom uh, is Esau's descendants, and they're also gonna be mentioned here, the Edomites. So we got the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites, uh, as well as a few others that we'll look at. First, the Ammonites, verses one through seven. It says, the word of the Lord came again to me, saying, son of man, set thy face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. And say unto the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God, Thus saith the Lord God, because thou saidst aha against my sanctuary when it was profaned and against the land of Israel when it was desolate and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. Behold, therefore, I will deliver thee to the men of the east for for a possession and they shall set their palaces in thee and make their dwellings in thee and they shall eat thy fruit and drink thy milk. And I will make Rabbah a stable for camels and the Ammonites a couching place for the flocks. And you shall know that I am Jehovah. For uh, thus saith the Lord God, uh, because thou hast clapped thine hands and stamped with thy feet and rejoiced in thy heart with with all thy despite against the land of Israel, behold, therefore will I stretch out mine hand upon thee and will deliver thee for a spoil to the heathen. And I will cut thee off from the people and I will cause thee to perish out of the countries. I will destroy thee and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Isn't it interesting that the Lord notices when um, nations celebrate against other nations, at least in this story, and the Lord doesn't change. One of the things you may not have seen uh, years ago on 9-11, Do you guys remember, um, there was only like one news agency that showed a snippet and then it was stifled because it it wasn't politically correct news. But what happened was after the planes flew into the towers in New York City, there was video that came out. One of the news agencies showed it um, and I even got it uh, and showed it at one of my prophecy updates. How many years ago was that now? Wow. Uh, uh, but, uh, um, but they hid it and uh, it's hard to even find today. You can't find it. But there was Palestinians celebrating in the streets when they saw that the United States had catastrophe and the, and the towers were down. They were shooting their AKs and they were passing out candy and clapping their hands and dancing in the streets because of America's demise. Um, now that wasn't a popular thing and it wasn't gonna be good for the Palestinians long-term so they decided to remove it quickly off the news. How many of you guys saw that snippet? Any of you guys? It kind of was a thing that they hid sort of after the deal. Um, but, but if you could almost picture, that's exactly what happened when Jerusalem's temple was defiled. The Ammonites, well, they didn't have AKs, but you know, they were like, yeah, you know, they did all that stuff. Now, by the way, um, I know what the celebration looks like. My buddy, Matt Hamilton and I were in, uh, in uh, Jordan and we were staying the night at this hotel that a couple months later got bombed, by the way, um, literally uh, bombed to the ground. But, um, but we were staying there a few weeks before. Um, and we were, we were, it was just kind of getting to be that time to kind of call it an evening 
when all of a sudden we heard this, da, 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 da. we're like, oh great, here we go. And we went and looked out the window and the, the building next to us was a little shorter and we were up on a higher floor, like the ninth floor, looking down on the roof of another tall building. And what it was, it was a wedding. Uh, and they were just celebrating by shooting their AK-47s on the roof of this hotel. Now, by the way, uh, interestingly enough, since then, they've made that illegal in Jordan. The reason why is the stray bullets were killing all kinds of people. Like the bullets would land in places in uh, Amman, Jordan there and, um, and kill people. So they, that's now outlawed since that time. I thought it was a pretty smart idea. Um, but that kind of celebration, um, if you could almost picture the Middle East, that's what these you know, Ammonites were doing when they saw the temple in Jerusalem defiled, they're like, ah, that's awesome. And that's this, aha, aha, that's what they're saying. They're relishing the destruction of the Jews. And God says, you know what? I don't like that. I don't like people celebrating the pain of my people, even though the Lord was allowing that to happen. Um, it's like, like I mentioned on Sunday, you know, the sibling that's laughing because the other sibling's getting the spanking. Um, that's not a healthy thing. Um, and uh, and that's, that's actually... Uh, evil. And the Lord says, because of that, you're going down, Ammon. And, uh, and so that's what he says to the Ammonites. Now pick up with the Moabites in verse eight. He says in verse eight, thus saith the Lord God, because that Moab and Seir do say, behold, the house of Judah is like unto all the heathen. By the way, this was their sin. They were, they were sort of laughing that the Jews were just like all the other nations. <laughs> they don't follow their Lord anymore. And, and because of that, Therefore, verse nine, behold, I will open the side of Moab uh, from the uh, cities, from his cities, which are on his frontiers, uh, the glory of the country, Beth Yesh Imot, uh, Baal Mion, and Kiriataim, unto the men of the east with the Ammonites, and will give them in possession that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations." And I will execute judgment upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. This phrase is employed so many times in the book of Ezekiel. You know, um, much of what God does is so that they will know that Jehovah, he is the true and living God. They will know that I am the Lord, and that's the reason he does this. Now, you will either know that he's the Lord before, or you will know that he's the Lord after but it's up to you whether you know before or after. You know, you, you either bow the knee now and believe upon the Lord who the Bible describes here, or you will believe later. Um, everybody's gonna believe, uh, but the question is, is it gonna be a saving belief or a retrospective belief looking backward going, oh yeah, I guess he is the Lord, my bad. Well, that's what these nations are a picture of, people that kind of uh, knew that God was doing something, but they didn't really recognize him as God, the God of the Jews. And, and the Lord says, I'll show you who's truly God. And, and this happens throughout the Bible. Remember, you know, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is God that Moses talks about? And what could he do to stay my hand? That's what Pharaoh said. Well, he learned. The Lord showed him who his hand was. Uh, and same with Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar was uh, having everybody bow down to a statue and he pridefully says, you know, you know, I am the one you're supposed to worship. But by the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar is sounding like Paul the apostle. Oh, those who walk in pride against the Lord, he will abase. Like Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that he is the Lord. But that's ultimately what's gonna happen with the whole world. Um, now this helps me with perspective because it's tempting to look at the world today and all the weird things that are going on 
and look at these people with disdain and even think how ridiculous their logic or lack thereof is and some of the painful worldviews that we see in some of these groups and stuff that's happening. And the world is so full of misinformation and, and people are just kind of crazy right now. Like there's crazy, crazy worldviews, stuff that makes no sense whatsoever. And the temptation is to be really hatred, have hatred and anger toward them and, and to be thinking what a bunch of idiots and all that stuff. But to have a correct view is to understand those people will know that he is the Lord at some point, sometime. And, and it's, it's kind of heartbreaking if you think about it. Remember we did that sermon um, about standing in the gap, uh, even for the unbeliever, praying for the unbeliever. And it's an interesting thing that people think, well, I don't wanna pray for them, but isn't it interesting we're supposed to pray for our enemies and pray for people that are doing stupid stuff and pray for their salvation? Um, that's the heart of the Lord, by the way. We're gonna see how even the Lord's gonna mourn these enemy cities and people groups. He's gonna mourn because of their destruction, even though he's the one saying, you're gonna be destroyed. Um, and I think we have to be careful not to rejoice in how stupid people are, but rather pray for people that are doing stupid things with compassion, knowing that someday they will bow before the Lord. It's gonna either be now or it's gonna be later, and later it's gonna be too late. That should be heartbreaking for us. It's heartbreaking toward the Lord. When you read the rest of the Bible, it says, oh, the Lord, I would that none should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. Like you get this heart from the Lord that he loves the whole world so much that he gave his only begotten son and died for the sins of the whole world. Now, it's up to the world whether they're gonna believe and accept, but God has that kind of love for even the worst of sinners. That's an amazing thing, and we should probably kind of rethink our, our attitude toward the unbeliever or the person who's messed up. But interestingly enough, the Moabites, they're going down, and they're gonna eventually know that he is the Lord, just like everybody else. Verse 12, now we pick up the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Verse 12, thus saith the Lord God, because that Edom hath dealt against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and hath greatly offended and revenged himself upon them. Um, by the way, both the Edomites and the tiny remnant of Philistines that are left um, were people that um, did this. They, they sort of um, hit Israel when they were down. When they were weakest, these, uh, the Edomites and the Philistines sort of took plunder from a beaten down bunch of Jews. And the Lord's recognizing that. And he says, um, you know, you have greatly offended and revenged himself upon them. That's kind of what he's talking about. Verse 13, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will also stretch out mine hand on Edom and will cut off man and beast from it. And I will make it desolate from Teman uh, and they of Dedan shall fall by the sword. Uh, now, now we're getting ready to list a whole bunch of nations and what have you. Um, and we'll get into some of these nations and who they are when we get to Ezekiel 38. Uh, we'll talk more about that, but stick with me here on these nations. Uh, verse 14, I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to mine anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, saith the Lord God. So the Edomites, they're going down along with Dedan, which is um, part of Saudi Arabia, Dedan and Timan. But now the tiny remnant of Philistines, by this time the Philistines were almost extinct. But there was a little group down in the Gaza Strip still uh, alive and kicking, but not for much longer in history. They're about to be rubbed out. 
Um, verse 15, thus saith the Lord God, because the Philistines have dealt by revenge and have taken vengeance with a despot, uh, despiteful heart to destroy it for the old hatred. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will stretch out my hand upon the Philistines and I will cut off the Keratims. Um, by the way, that's a tribe of the Philistines, the Keratims, and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. Um, that's the, the Gaza Strip. If you look at a map of Israel, the Gaza Strip, Ascalon, and all those nice cities down there. By the way, the Philistine cities, Gath and Ascalon, that's some of the prettiest area down in uh, Israel. The province is where the old missiles hit right now. Uh, if you live in Ascalon, that's where all the uh, Hamas rockets are flying and landing. Uh, beautiful place, looks like San Diego. Kind of like Laguna Beach, it reminds me of Laguna Beach. Uh, but it's really not a pleasant place to live because of 4,000 rockets over the last three or four weeks. Uh, that makes it a little hard to live at. But uh, that's this area where these Philistines were, the seacoast, verse 16. And verse 17, I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall lay my vengeance upon them. So there goes the Philistines. So th these are the nations, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and the Philistines, all tagged to be judged by God because of the way they treated the Jews and their attitude toward the Jews. And remember, the Lord says, I will bless the nations that bless Israel, and I will curse the nations that curse Israel. And that's not just an ancient promise, that promise stands t true today. Very important to know that. Um, and that's why we should be praying that our administration treats Israel well. Um, that's something we really should be praying for. Now in chapter 26, this begins a long uh, description of the destruction of Tyre. Um, and we began this discussion on Sunday. We looked at chapter 26 on Sunday. If you missed that, we did the whole chapter. And we saw that this is four oracles or four prophecies from Ezekiel about the city of Tyre. Now, some of you might say, well, I get the Moabites, the Ammonites, the you know, Edomites and the Philistines, but why does the Lord spend all this time talking about Tyre? We gotta remember, if we learned it on Sunday, um, you know, it, Tyre was the city, the New York of Bible times, of this time period. You know, it was the beautiful city. It was a wealthy city. It was an art-filled city of music and art and architecture and technology. Man, they had shipping down to a science and they'd made these ships, the Phoenicians did, that would travel for many more miles than any other ship uh, up to that point in history. And, and these, these people were dialed in. And uh, this city was a beautiful, almost like a paradise kind of place. Um, and uh, I, I always marvel when people say, oh, I just love New York. But I've been to New York several times and, and all I can remember is urine. Like I smell urine. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? You guys been to New York? You walk down the street, it's like, phew. Uh, can I go back to Oregon? Uh, it's like, it just doesn't smell that great to me. I, I don't like urine smell. Same with uh, New Orleans, by the way, except vomit also in New Orleans. Uh, I'm sorry if you're from there, but uh, man, the Mardi Gras thing, man, those people, you know, woo, uh, it gets a little, a little crazy over there and it just kind of stinks. But um, that's the problem. Cities look beautiful from a distance. But uh, wherever you have a, a concentration of people, guess what else you have a concentration of? Sin. Are farming countries and communities less sinful than, than big cities? Probably not. Um, you know, farmers are sinful just like people in the city. The difference is, you, you know, far, farmers are spread out uh, and, and, and the, the, the people in the cities are all piled up together and it just kind of gets to be really gross. Um, I've heard it said, Christians are like manure, spread out, they do a lot of good, but in a pile, it starts to stink. 
<laughs> um, that's the problem. And Tyre was that city. It was a big giant city, but it had an evil tendency to hate the Jews. And because of that, we learned on Sunday that God says, I'm calling you out for rejoicing when the Jews were destroyed. Uh, and one year later, we learned in 585 BC, the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar uh, did the first wave of crushing the city of Tyre. And we looked at that miraculous prophecy um, because that's why chapter 26 is so exacting. It tells us how it would happen and that their houses would be thrown in the ocean, which is exactly what happened when uh, Alexander the Great came and the Crusaders. And we talked about that on Sunday, if you missed it. Um, that's the first part or oracle against Tyre. Chapter 27 is the second part. And it's, a, it's sort of like a, um, if you would, scholars call it a funeral dirge. Uh, for the city of Tyre. It's almost like a mourning. It's like God says, I'm gonna judge you, but I'm also gonna mourn you. We're gonna mourn the loss of a glorious city um, because of their evil heart toward the Jews. Let's take a look. So we'll jump forward to chapter 27. Again, if you missed 26, we did it on Sunday. It says there in verse one of 27, this is the dirge, the funeral dirge. The word of the Lord came again unto me saying, now thou son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyrus and say unto Tyrus, O thou that uh, art uh, situate at the entry of the sea, which art a, a merchant of the people for many isles. Thus saith the Lord God, O Tyrus, thou hast said, I am of perfect beauty. Now right here, we already start to see maybe where some of the problem is. Um, they're, they're called the city there that's situate by the sea. They were the, the port where all the spices and herbs and things from the, the east there would come through the Middle East to the port of Tyre and go all throughout. And, and the word the isles there is probably not the best translation as much as the nations surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. If you look at a map of the Mediterranean Sea, the people of Tyre were shipping all the way to what is today Spain and even England uh, in those days because their shipping was so dialed in, they were able to ship that far. Uh, we'll show you some of those nations that made Tyre wealthy coming up here in this chapter. But notice that, that Tyre, the people of Tyre, thou hast said, I am of perfect beauty. Um, do you sense there's a little bit of pride in there? They're the ones who said that, not the Lord. The Lord didn't say, wow, you're a beautiful city. No, they said, you have said of yourselves, you're a beautiful city. I do worry a little bit about, you know, as a patriot, as a lover of our country and, you know, uh, our military and, you know, just, I, I, I really do love our country. But at the same time, I do worry that we've be, not just been, you know, proud Americans, but we've become prideful Americans. And it, it, it starts to look kind of ugly if we're not careful. And, and, you know, I've seen this for the last several decades. I always worry about the Olympics. The Olympics are coming. Is anybody excited about the Olympics? Watching some of that? And you're like, no. <laughs> um, some of us are. I, I used to love, as a kid, watching the Olympics, but one of the things that's so painful is watching the American athletes and their pride, um, where they turn around and give the signal, like, come on, try to catch me. And, you know, they beat their chests pridefully. And, like, there's, a, there's, a, there's no humility. Like, it's hard to find athletes anymore from America. And the rest of the world just kind of looks on and shakes their heads and say, are you kidding, these Americans, really? And it's really a bad, it's a bad thing. I think that's only the tip of the iceberg of what's really going on. We as Americans have to be careful. Yes, we love our country. 
And man, we, we've been the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we've had a godly heritage that goes all the way back to our founders. And there's so much about America that I can say it's good, but there's so much about it that it's spiraling out of control and it's getting uglier by the minute. And I think something's gotta give, something's gotta change or else we're gonna have to uh, do, have a different attitude toward our a prideful nation. These people said, oh, our beautiful city. The Lord doesn't say it's beautiful, but thou hast said, I am of perfect beauty. I think that might be the first problem right there. Verse four, thy borders are in the midst of the seas. Thy builders have perfected thy beauty. They have made all thy shipboards of fir trees of senior. Mark senior there, it's an interesting different name for um, uh, really Mount Hermon there in Israel. They got, their, they got their fir trees from Israel for their ships, the Phoenicians did. Um, now Mount Sinai, Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain peak in Israel and there's a, a ski lift. I've been up the ski lift. Uh, you can go up and snowboard up in Israel if you, if you can imagine that. Uh, but it's way up there, uh, high altitude and uh, you can look over Lebanon and Syria and all that from, from Mount Hermon. But that's where they got these trees to build their ships. Um, and they, uh, it says they, verse five, made shipboards from the fir trees of, of Sinar, Mount Hermon. They have taken cedars from Lebanon to make masts for thee. The oaks of Bashan have they made, uh, thine oars. Um, question, does anybody know where the area of Bashan is? Anybody? The Golan Heights. That's kind of another word for the Golan Heights. Um, and there's a few other, it, it's the Golan plus a few other areas adjacent to Golani. But um, the Golan Heights is that contested land that some people say belongs to other people. Uh, but it is the Jewish land. It, is, it does belong to the Jews, uh, whether you know it or not. Uh, in fact, a lot more belongs to the Jews according to the Bible, but we, we won't get onto that tirade. Um, so that's the Golan Heights. Of the oaks of Bashan, are there oak trees up there anymore? No, if you've been to the Golan Heights, there's not many of anything except for, there's a bunch of eucalyptus trees. Now, therein lies an interesting story that I probably shouldn't tell you because I wanted to get all the way through chapter 28. But there was a, there was a Mossad spy, his name was Ellie Cohen, and um, uh, a great book, Our Man from Damascus is what it's called. But this Jewish guy becomes a spy, goes down to Argentina, gets really good friends with all the Syrians, Arab Syrians that are there in Argentina and becomes this sort of famous businessman and he's got millions of dollars, but he's actually a Mossad agent. So they finally sort of start welcoming, welcoming this guy into Syria and he's this Jewish spy. And it's an amazing story and he goes and, um, and probably one of the more famous things that he did among many, this guy was super brave or crazy, I'm not sure which one. But he, he, um, one of the things he did is he finally convinced them to uh, show him sort of some of their military positions uh, that were overlooking there in the Golan Heights. This is back in, you know, pre-1967. Um, and and they were, it was when they were uh, still, the, the Syrians had the Golan Heights. And he was looking at all the positions up there and he said, you know, the Israelis, those Jews down there, they're smart people. And he said, did you notice all, how they have all those trees around their bunkers and their, their soldiers are chilling in the shade while all, your, all of our guys are, are burning in these ovens of these bunkers and there's no trees. And so the Syrian says, well, what should we do? And Eli Cohen said, we should, we should plant trees all around the bunkers so the guys are in the shade um, and they'll do so much better. 
true story, he paid for all the trees. Like Ellie Cohen paid the money, got the trees, they planted all the trees. And then Ellie got on his little communicator and said, just bomb where the trees are and you're good to go. And that, like, that's a true story. And, and he wiped out much of the Syrian army because it was like putting a, a bullseye on all the bunkers. Um, it's, a, it's quite a story. Uh, I won't tell you the end of it because I'll ruin it for you, but it's quite a dramatic ending. Uh, be that as it may, there's a movie that came out recently, but I can't recommend it because it's a great movie right up until like the fifth episode, it becomes kind of pornographic. So I've, I can't recommend it. Uh, it's really a bummer, but it is a true story. Um, now, why did I get on that? Oh, the Golan Heights, yes. <laughs> Bation, Bation, yes, Bation. Uh, but there's no oak trees there. They, they were long gone during the Ottoman Turk reign and now it's just eucalyptus trees. <laughs> well, they made their oars out of those oaks on Bashan. The company of the Asherites, another name for Assyrians, have made thy benches of ivory brought uh, uh, out of the Isles of Chittim, which is another name for Cyprus. Fine linen with broidered work from Egypt was that which thou spreadest forth to be thy sail. Blue and purple from the Isles of uh, Elisha, which was, uh, was that which covered thee. The inhabitants of Zidon uh, and Arvad were thy mariners, thy wise men, O Tyrus, that, uh, that were in thee were thy pilots or the captains of their boats. By the way, interesting that these, uh, the, the Phoenicians, they built the boats, but they used these merchant soldiers sort of to come and, um, and be sort of their military. They, they themselves weren't the largest portion of their military. They hired outside people from the men of Zidon and Arvad and other places, which we'll mention here in a minute. But, uh, but they weren't the actual captains of their ships. They got people from other nations to do that. Verse nine, the ancients of Gebal. We don't really know where Gebal is, by the way. And the wise men thereof were in thee by the caulkers uh, and all the ships of the sea with their mariners were in thee to occupy um, thy merchant site, or literally exchange. The word occupy there is probably a, a rough translation of a, of a word that should have been exchange, um, you know, trading merchandise. Now, um, one thing that's kind of interesting is that they, um, when you learn about Phoenician history and their, their technology of sailing, one of the things they did as they were sailing in the water in real time is they had these caulkers. This is true, the Bible nails this and Josephus writes about this and ancient history tells us that you know, they have these beautiful boards of cedars of Lebanon with masts and fir trees from you know, Mount Hermon. They made these beautiful ships with their sails that were tapestries. Like, like these ships were beautiful, you can tell just in the description here. But one of the technologies that made it so that they could go for long distances is they had these people that would literally, as the guys were rowing and the sails were sailing, they had full-time caulkers and they went with like a petroleum sort of goo and they would sort of caulk all the joints and keep kind of fresh caulk in all the, the boards. They would overlap boards on the ship and then they would sort of caulk the sides to make sure there was no leaks. And when there were leaks, they'd get the caulkers out and start caulking those leaks. Uh, but it was in real time as they were going, they would keep these things sort of afloat. Uh, so as beautiful as these ships were, they weren't super efficient yet. They took on waters quite a bit still but that's why they have the full-time caulkers. They're mentioned in verse nine. Sorry, these things intrigue me. I, I, I'm sorry if, uh, if I'm boring some of you uh, on this, but um, be that as it may. Verse 10, they have Persia. Where's Persia? Iran, yes. And of Lud and of Put were in thine army. 
men of war. So remember, these guys had all kinds of people come into their army, which made this city very fortified. Now you might say, why are all these other nations being in the army of the men of Tyre? The answer, Tyre made everybody wealthy. Everybody was interested in keeping Tyre um, you know, successful because of all the wealth that was being pumped from there to all their communities. So um, it says the men of Persia put Lud, uh, were in the army of uh, thy men of war. They hanged the shield and the helmet in thee and they set forth thy comeliness or guarded it is the idea. The men of Arbad, which thine army were upon thy walls round about and uh, the Gamadims. Uh, um, interesting, we don't know who these were, but the name means brave warriors. These guys were brave warriors. Maybe they were like their SEAL Team 6 guys, I don't know. But they were in the towers and they hanged their shields upon thy walls round about. They have made their beauty perfect. Tarshish, remember Tarshish? We've heard that several times in the Bible uh, when you hear about you know, Jonah and some other places. But uh, we don't know for sure where Tarshish is. Some people say Spain, some people say England, parts of England. Uh, we don't know, but it was a long ways away. We do know that. And these Phoenicians would often sail all the way to Tarshish. Tarshish was thy merchant by reason of the multitudes of thy kind riches, kind of riches with silver, iron, tin, and lead. They traded in thy fares. Yavan, Tubal, Meshech, they were thy merchants. They traded the, uh, the persons of men and vessels of brass in thy market. And they of the house of Tulgarma traded in thy fares with horses and horsemen and mules. The men of Dedan, the Arabians, were thy merchants. Many isles were of the merchandise of thine hand. They brought, uh, brought thee for a present horns of ivory and of ebony. Syria, now by the way, those last verses 13, 14, 15, those are nations we're gonna list in Ezekiel 38 and we'll get into that. If you wanna know what these nations, the ancient names are relative to the modern day nations, a good study in Genesis chapter 10, it's called the Table of Nations, Genesis 10. And that's where you can kind of discern what these nations are and who they are in modern times. I know that's a, a bit of a heady thing to do, but we'll need to do that uh, when we get to Ezekiel 38. We won't do it tonight. Syria, verse 16, was thy merchant by reason of the multitude of the wares of thy making. They occupied in thy fairs with emeralds, purple, and broidered work, and fine linen, and coral, and agate. Judah and the land of Israel, they were thy merchants. They traded in thy market wheat of Manit and Panag and honey and oil and balm. Damascus was thy merchant in the multitude of thy wares of thy making for the multitude of all riches in the wine of, he, uh, of Helbon and the white wool. Dan also and Yavin going to and fro occupied the, uh, thy fairs, bright iron, cassia and calmus uh, were in thy market. Dedan was thy merchant in precious clothes for chariots. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar, they occupied with thee in lambs and rams and goats. In these were they thy merchants. The merchants of Sheba and Ramah, um, they, were in, uh, they were thy merchants. They occupied in the, thy fairs with chief of all spices, with all precious stones and gold. Um, now you're saying, Brett, this is boring. Well, you, what you're supposed to be getting out of this, it's almost like if you were, could picture a video tour of the city of Tyre and you'd see it was diverse and beautiful and wealthy. And it's like, go down the streets and look at the beautiful silks and the fine meats 
and all those, like we're seeing how sumptuous the city was. That's what we're supposed to be seeing here. Um, we're just spoiled because we have movies. So reading this, you're kind of like, <laughs> but I hopefully you understand that's the picture. We're supposed to be grieving the loss of all this. That's the point. And he goes on, verse 23, Haran and Canet and Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Asher and Kilmad were thy merchants. These were thy merchants in all sorts of things, blue clothes, broidered work, and chests of rich apparel bound with cords made of cedar among thy merchandise. The ships of Tarshish did sing of thee in thy market, and thou wast replenished and made very glorious in the midst of the seas. So um, the first part of this, you know, we see uh, this, the beautiful, by the way, um, we were talking about the ship, and I, I forgot to mention in the first, you know, first section, verses one through nine, the ship is actually the city of Tyre. It's sort of a, um, you know, uh, example uh, explaining this beautiful ship was actually explain, explaining Tyre. That's verses one through eight, uh, or one through nine, I should say. And then her trade partners and all the nations involved, that's verses uh, 10 through 25. And now the end of this is her catastrophic shipwreck. That's the idea. We see the beauty, we see the trade partners. Now we're gonna see the shipwreck, verse 26. Thy rowers have brought thee into great waters. The east wind hath broken thee in the midst of the seas. Anybody remember what the east wind is a picture of? Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 27, thy riches and thy fares, thy merchandise, thy mariners, thy pilots, thy caulkers, the occupiers of thy merchandise and all thy men of war are in thee, that are in thee and in all thy company which is in the midst of thee shall fall into the midst of the seas in the days of thy ruin. The suburbs shall shake at the sound of the cry of thy pilots and all that can handle the oar, the mariners and all the pilots of the sea shall come down from their ships and they shall stand upon the land and shall cause their voice to be heard against thee and shall cry bitterly and shall cast up dust on their heads and shall wallow themselves in the ashes. We used to call that corn dog. And remember you get out of the water and roll in the sand and you become a corn dog. Um, that's what they're doing right here. Verse 31. And they shall make themselves utterly bald for thee and gird them with sackcloth and they shall weep for thee with bitterness of heart and bitterness, bitter wailing. And in their wailing, they shall take up a lamentation for thee and lament over thee saying, what city is like Tyrus, like the destroyed in the midst of the sea? When thy wares went forth out of the seas, thou filledest thy, uh, many people, thou didst enrich the kings of the earth with the multitude of thy riches and of thy merchandise. In the time when thou shalt be broken by the seas and the depths of the waters by the merchandise, and all thy company in the midst of thee shall fall, and all the inhabitants of the isles shall be astonished at thee, and their kings shall be sore afraid, and they shall be troubled in their countenance. The merchants among the people shall hiss at thee, Remember what it means to hiss in King Jimmy? It means to whistle, whistle in astonishment. Boy, they'll go, wow, tire. That's something. That's what they're saying. They'll hiss at thee and shall be a terror and, shall be, uh, and, and never shall be anymore. And Tyre would never um, entirely uh, come back as a great city. Um, it was, as we said on Sunday, they became a flat tire and, and uh, it was not a good year for the city of Tyre. Now, you're supposed to get sort of a haunted, sort of freaky, terrorizing picture there. Uh, 
Um, maybe you guys feel that when you look at the, some of the movies of the Titanic, when they got cameras down in there. Um, you know, Tad's over here. We, Tad and I got to dive a ship in the South Pacific uh, off the port there near Luganville in, in Vanuatu. We had an afternoon, so we took this little dive. It was just a little dive. We, you know, you go down like 160 feet down, 180 feet down. It's a pretty long, deep dive. It's past recreational diving. Um, but it's this huge ship, the USS Coolidge from World War II. And what's interesting about it is it hit a couple mines and sunk in World War II. And, um, and you can dive down in there. And what's amazing is it's still largely intact uh, in so many ways. It's starting to fall apart after all these years of rusting under the ocean there. But before it was a troop transporter, it was a um, cruise liner in the 19, I think it was built in like 1938. And then and shortly after that, they turned it into a transport ship. And there's pictures of Bob Hope doing his USO tour on the deck of the Coolidge and stuff like that. Like it was a typical World War II troop transporter. But because it was a, a, a cruise ship first, it literally has just like the Titanic, the two spiral staircases going up in the main room. And there's still, the main artwork picture is still on the wall. Like you can scuba dive right into the center of this hall in the middle of the ship and see the, the painting that's still on the wall. Um, there's even a barber shop. You can go sit with your scuba gear and the ship is lying on the side. So you kind of have to get sideways, uh, but you can sit in the barber chair in the barber shop. And um, it, it's quite an amazing scuba dive. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's creepy, especially there's this one room where there was this ship, this fish. Uh, the fish died a few years ago, but it, for about 12 years, there was a fish named Morris. And it was a grouper fish that went into a room in the ship and started eating all the other fish and got so big, he couldn't get out. It was like too big. He's like the size of a Volkswagen. I'm not kidding. This huge grouper uh, fish, uh, not a very handsome fella, uh, quite scary. Like if you look, if you see a grouper fish, you know, but, um, but, but there's something creepy about a sunken ship, especially if it was a luxury liner and all its wealth and glory. And you see it just sitting at the bottom of the ocean. There's something very creepy about that. That's the imagery of Tyre, that it was once a glorious thing that now it's at the bottom of the ocean and in all her beauty, she's sunk and, and people were wailing and mourning at the loss. That's the deal. That's what's going on with Tyre. Now in chapter 28, which we were hoping to get tonight, but we're not going to, um, we're gonna talk about the king and the ruler of Tyre. But here's where Ezekiel gets really kind of strange. And he does this a lot, by the way, where he's gonna take his gaze and go past Tyre and look at even future prophecies about the ruler or the king of Tyre. Um, and it's gonna be somebody who's not the king of Tyre, but somebody entirely different. Um, and we're gonna see who that is. If you can guess who the, the king of Tyre is gonna be sort of a picture, an illustration of, that's coming next week. And it'll be uh, really something as we look at it. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. And these stories remind us of the reality of judgment, the reality of sin, um, and Lord, I pray that we would not uh, just blow off your word, Lord, in this. I pray that as we live in days where men live in total rebellion against you, Lord, we too could fall prey to this sort of apathetic attitude and, and just be prideful about who our nation is and, and not have a repentant or even grieving heart. As we uh, largely exclude you from our nation and we embrace such godless things, Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us as a nation for our arrogancy and our, our pridefulness. Lord, and I pray that we would repent and, and have an enlightenment where we turn and believe. 
But Lord, if that doesn't happen, we know what's coming. Your word tells us. So may we be lights in this dark world. I pray that we'd have a positive message, Lord, because we really do. The good news of the gospel, that anyone who repents and turns to you, Lord, can be saved, forgiven, and have the hope of heaven. How thankful we are for that, Lord. So use this time when we've been in your word to bring forth good fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.